0: What is up, guys? It is the Blue Bloods here coming back at y'all with another episode in our Pac 12 in 31 days. We are joined by Oregon football insider and writer for the Athletic for the Oregon Ducks. Tyson Alger is here with us today, and I just want to say I appreciate you joining me. Hey, of course, Zach. It's, uh, you know, May's a pretty good time to be
1: a college sports writer because, uh, I got time to do these sort of things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's, it's all, I mean, hey, I mean, outside of recruiting, that's about the only thing that never stops. So you got a lot of lot to do on that front. But I want to shift backwards, man. Last last fall, August 11th, the Pac-12 commissioner, Larry Scott, made the decision to postpone the Pac-12 season. It was retroactively, you know, pulled back, and we had a very, very condensed season, to say the least. It was praised by some it was condemned by others, especially once the SEC and some of these other conferences started playing football. What was your initial reaction to to the decision to postpone the season? And did Oregon have any alternative plans if the Pac-12 doesn't go back and change what it was going to do? You know, it's that, that was such a wild time because, one – there was just
1: like this this feeling of like they needed to figure something out because you did see for like across the rest of the country, uh, you know SEC and all these other conferences like getting their stuff together, and then meanwhile you had a conference in the Pac-12 that like revised its schedule, canceled its schedule, and then decided to bring things back. And so like very specifically, like my thoughts for it was like, well, this is going to basically screw Oregon for this year because like the the Ducks had a roster. Um, where if a couple of things went right for them, they they had they had a chance to. Uh, I mean, they won the Pac-12 title last year, even after having five very important op- or sorry, four very important opt outs. And um, I, I thought they had an outside chance of putting something together last year that would have at least been more nationally relevant than what they ended up doing. And so I think it was a lot of that, and especially uh, you know I covered Penny Sewell for you know his three years in, in Eugene, and I was uh, kind of pretty tuned into like that time of of the year with them and just like for those guys that were potential first round picks, um, they just had like zero guidance from the league and and from like everything in terms of like, why should I stay? You guys aren't announcing anything. And it was, it was just a chaotic time and a a overall chaotic time for the conference too. Like, especially with, you know, Larry Scott's impending departure and everything. It was, it was, it was a mess and I'm babbling about it because it was
0: just, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I mean, you did a better job covering it there than they did managing it. I mean, I think on the podcast here, I mentioned that they tried to be more first than right in terms of how they handled the situation. They wanted to be the first one to kind of take that like progressive step to cancel the season. And listen, I picked Oregon to make the playoffs in my preseason predictions before all this COVID cancellation happened. So I was super high on the Ducks, but In the 2020 season, you mentioned they win the Pac-12 championship. They take Washington's place, who was left out of the title game due to COVID issues, as a big rival for Washington. That had to be a huge slap in the face for them, that their rival got to take their place and win the title. But for you, did this season meet, exceed, or fall short of your preseason expectations?
1: Well, it's, it's funny just going back to that, because that, that was just a bizarre two weeks, because for one week, all the Oregon fans were just incredibly angry at Washington. because um, So Oregon and was- or Oregon was supposed to host Washington at Autzen, and the winner of that was going to win the North Division. But because Washington couldn't play in that, they ended up winning by default, and so Oregon fans thought Washington was ducking them. And then Washington can't go play in the title game. And then the Ducks are able to slip in. And it was like, it was the perfect Pac-12 season that like a second place team in in the North division ends up then wiping out undefeated USC in the South. So like, I, I guess when you get down to the, they, they won a conference title, they, they made it to a, a new year six game. I guess like in that realm, they, they probably were like right on target, especially considering the opt-outs. But they lost three of their final four games at the end of the year. They were really consistent on offense. And I, I just thought um, the biggest the biggest factor in in what the pandemic did to the team like Oregon last year is, in 2019, their defense was so in sync. There was no missed tackles. They were a ball hawking secondary. And they just seemed like they were off a step all, like throughout the whole year last year. And there was just not enough time in a, a, a six or seven-game schedule to really kind of tinker with those sort of things without it just essentially taking up your whole year. So uh, I, I think they underperformed in, in in the sense of how well they actually played week by week. But I mean they're not going to apologize for winning
0: a conference title at the same time at the same time. Absolutely. I mean you look at the opt-outs just on like I know Panacea well arguably probably maybe the best player in costume ball last year going into the year opts out. But I'll look more in that secondary man. Javon Holland, listen Uh, On this podcast, people could tell you Javon Holland was my guy. I was like, this kid might be the best secondary player right there with Derek Stingley in the country. And the the Pac-12 right now is not really known for dominating, just stifling defenses. But this Oregon defense coming into, let's just say this year, might be one of the most talented units in the country. You look at someone like Kayvon Thibodeau, who's a projected maybe number one pick In this next year's NFL draft, you have the two five star linebackers, you you have talent literally everywhere. What has been the key to the defensive rebuild in Eugene and what do you expect from this defense this coming year? Man,
1: it's, it's
0: crazy because
1: I started covering Oregon back when it was still like the, the fast pace, like flash offense, like score at will sort of thing. And, and for it, within a matter of about five, six years to transition to a school where like the fans are getting excited about the defensive side of the ball. And I've, I've never been around Oregon when that's been, been the case. And so they've, uh, they've really shifted their recruiting towards uh, like lengthy explosive athletes, especially on the edge. I mean, like you see like Thibodeau, but I mean, like just, we, we saw Justin flow in the spring game a couple weeks ago and this is after he missed all the last season with an injury and he's technically like pretty low down on the depth chart, but I don't see how he doesn't start at some point this year. Just just. It, when you see a five star on a field like that, that caliber five star up close, it's just it, it's it's a different type of athlete. So um, they've they really, I mean, essentially since Cristobal came in, they just decided that like there's no athlete that we're not gonna like that we're gonna disqualify ourselves from. And that was kind of that was kind of Oregon's mo before is they always tried to go after guys that they thought might be interested in coming into Eugene. And the big transformation under Cristobal has been like, why wouldn't they want to come here? We're gonna go get those guys, and and especially like the last. I mean, his first three recruiting classes were just like loaded on the defensive line, loaded at linebacker, and they've just been piling up in the secondary, too. I mean, like, Holland was a stud. Uh, Veron McKinley, their free safety right now, like, he's a stud. Uh, Dante Manning, they have another five star back there who's going to be like, num- probably the number three cornerback this year. Like, they, they're just like accumulating depth at the secondary. I mean, at the second level of the depth chart that they just didn't have before because. Oregon's had good defensive players in the past. Like DeForest Buckner was a first-round pick. Eric Armstead was a first-round pick. They just didn't have that second unit. They just didn't have that depth. And, and Oregon's just basically, like, stacking guys on guys on guys now, and it's it's really paying off. And that that's even on top of the fact that they're on their third defensive coordinator in the last four seasons. And they did take a little bit of a step back last year, but I attribute that more to kind of the pandemic conditions and just not being able to practice at full tilt than
0: anything else. Right. And I mean, I want to go to the office side of the ball now because this is an area that uh, I mean, I never thought I'd see this. A quarterback goes and, win a, goes and wins the Pac-12 championship and then transfers after the season. And Tyler Shaw, he's off to Texas Tech. But for me, it's weird because Oregon seems like they have better eyes to get a better guy in that starting role this year. I really am in love with Ty Thompson and what he could bring, especially in the future at Oregon. But it looks like Anthony Brown is the presumptive favorite to take that QB one role. What do each of these guys bring to the table and who is your predicted starter for the 2021 season?
1: Yeah, it's, it's 99% chance. It's going to be Brown. He's just so much more polished than anybody. There's, there's not another quarterback on the roster that's taken a a collegiate snap. And um, you know, I've, what we've seen of Brown has been in very small sample size. We saw him play in, in situational parts of two games last year, coming on the off the bench behind Chuck. And then we saw him at two practices this spring. And, I mean, like, he, he looks the part of a veteran. He makes decisions quickly. He's relatively accurate with the ball. He doesn't really look like he gets all that rattled. But, I mean, he's – He's he looks like a good quarterback. I don't know if he's great, and I don't know if he has that ceiling. That's kind of the big question right now. Is Oregon's assuming it has a guy that's going to be able to get at skill position players the ball? They just don't know if this is also the type of guy that's going to be able to go over the top and win them a game. So we'll we'll see what happens there, but. It, there's just so such an ocean of experience between him and like a Ty Thompson or a Robbie Ashford or Jade Butterfield, who, I mean, it's three, four star quarterbacks with uh, like four years of eligibility behind them. Like it's an awfully talented group of freshmen in there. And, and Thompson's obviously the star he's uh he's the highest rated Oregon quarterback recruit of all time. Uh, I, I, writing about him leading in the to signing day, like every high school defensive coordinator in Arizona is like, thanking God that he's graduated and gone. And, uh and he looks really good. Like in the spring game, you know, he, he was inaccurate at times, but like, he's a freshman. It was his first time playing in the stadium and just his, his physical skills mixed with just like, uh, he can run, but he's always keeping his eyes downfield. He's always trying to like run that receiver open to kind of get him the ball. Um, he's going to be really, really good at Oregon, and and maybe if, if things don't go like, you know, if Oregon loses a couple games out of out of the gate, like I could totally see them going to to Thompson at some point. But I, I think just with especially with Ohio State in week two, they're probably going
0: to go on the guy that has I think twenty eight career starts right now, and that's Anthony Brown. Absolutely, and I like what Brown brings, but I think Thompson's going to be a star, man. I'm not going to lie. I think he'll be – I mean, he's going to – He's good. it's it's a big save. I think he has the potential to challenge Mariota's legacy at the quarterback position in Eugene. I mean, he's that good. But you mentioned one of the key changes, a question or two ago, is Mario Christenbaugh in the hire of him from Alabama, been the head guy since 2017, 25 and 10 over his first four years with two Pac-12 titles back-to-back these past two seasons, what makes him such a successful head coach for Oregon? And do you think he's the guy to bring Oregon that elusive national championship?
1: You know, it, it's it's hard to predict a, a national championship, but he's going to have them in the conversation. I, I think under Cristobal, their floor is kind of Pac-12 title contention and I think that they have, they're bringing in the type of talent where every like maybe three or four years, they might have that window to to potentially peak with the playoff and and go from there. But it's just been, um, it's just, you know, I, I alluded to it before, but like, like Oregon before just had kind of like this, uh, you know, it's like our type of players. We're going to go get like our type of guys, and like and it worked. Like Oregon, like Oregon had an unreal run for like eight years of like taking like three star guys and like turning them into like potential like Heisman candidates. Like just it was like video game offense, and and it worked for them. But like that's just an unreal run of luck to be able to do that. And, and so it's just the the amount of talent acquisition that they've been able to do since Chris Paul's got here, and then that mixed in with there's just been a lot more emphasis on like strength, the, like the strength training program. Like Oregon's guys are so much bigger than they were five, six years ago. And especially on the offensive line where like an average guy is like 325, like it's like, like walking around those guys, it just seems like a different type of build than it did. You know, even on like Oregon's like 2014 Rose Bowl college football playoff team It's it's just a emphasis on size and emphasis on like physical football. Um, Because, I mean, in truth, like, a lot of teams caught up with the Ducks in terms of what they were doing with, like, the spread and speed and everything, and I I think this was, you know, you don't always necessarily go in the complete opposite direction, and and Oregon still got a pretty good offense with uh, Joe Moorhead as offensive coordinator, but, uh, um, yeah, it's it's just turning this into, like, a physical football team has been, like, the real big change for him because, I mean, that's the type of football he saw down in the SEC.
0: Absolutely. I mean, he took that blueprint that he worked under for years and brought it up to the Pac-12, man. But you mentioned the spring game. You you, you were kind of mentioning the QB battle. And of course, that was something to watch. It was back in the first of the month. 35-34 win for the offense. I love the scoring format that they use for this game, by the way, too. I thought it was one of the more unique ones. Could could you explain it to me? I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so so what For what I was reading, what I was watching, is like the defense could could score points yeah, like, it was, it was like
1: down, Yeah, it was like a you know third down stop. Was it like a I, I forget exactly what I was.
0: Like. <laughs> yeah, they had a whole breakdown. Like I was reading about it like after watching, I was like, man, that that's that's a way different take than a lot of schools. But 35-34 win for the offense. Robbie Ashford walk off walk off score to win that one. But other than the quarterback battle, what were some storylines that you were paying a lot of attention to? And what were your overall takeaways from spring practice as a whole? Um, looking
1: at that linebacker group is, is interesting because they, they do have Kayvon Thibodeau playing in a little bit more of a hybrid role this year. Like he I mean, he's never been like your straight up conventional defensive end anyways. Like they've had him drop back like over the last couple of years. Like he's not always like a hand in the ground sort of guy, but they're they're kinda gonna have him in an outside linebacker hybrid, like Von Miller-esque, uh like Texas Tech role. And uh I mean You know, I don't, I never needed to see anything from Thibodeau in a spring game, but it's just, it's just fun to watch him. Especially after like we got, after we missed out on like a year of, of having Sewell around, like you just kind of appreciate those like elite level players while they're there. But, uh, the thing that I wanted to watch the most just because of like the just sheer amount of talent they have is Oregon's receiver, uh, receiving room is just stacked this year. Like, like they brought back every senior that had the ability to come back. They added, uh, this spring they had in two early enrollees who were both like top, I think, sixty players from the twenty twenty one class that looked like they could contribute right away, and then like every other like uh, grade level is has like three or four like guys that can contribute through there. So it's just like top to bottom, it's just. And and this is this is a team that like in Justin Herbert's twenty seventeen season had one receiver that he threw to. Like it was it was just like so thin then, and to go from there into to what they have now where it's. Uh, Micah Pittman has been injured the last two years, and I think that he could be a stud. He's Mike, uh, Michael Pittman Jr. is a younger brother, the receiver for the Colts. Uh, Devin Williams, has, they have like two guys that have like six, six frames, which is just like type of bodies that the Ducks haven't brought in before. Like, I, I think that's part of why uh, Brown is such an attractive quarterback for them is like, they know that Brown can get the ball at least to like these type of talents and, and let them go out and do their things. And it's, I I'm really excited to see what they are able to draw up with uh, not only just the talent of those receivers, but just like the discrepancy and like body types and sizes. Like they have like three or four, just like, you know, slot swing guys that like, I think Joe Moorhead probably would stays up till like 4am envisioning like how to get them open on like some sort of swing or screen and stuff. So it's, it will be fun to watch the receiving core.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That room is loaded. We did like a spring game recap for Oregon. That was one, one of the big, one of my big takeaways is like, man, you know, there's a perception like uh, even when Herbert was playing, there was there seemed to be like this weird perception outside of Eugene in the Pac-12 area that he didn't have any star receivers. And I'm like, there's a lot of talent up there at Oregon at the wide receiver, wide receiver position that just doesn't get recognized. And I think this is the year a lot of them are going to break out. But back, I want to get to the recruiting show. You mentioned it earlier. The 2021 class wrapped up back in February. A top six class, according to the 247 composite, for Oregon. This they had a. This is just a ridiculous stat for people. Thirteen top 200 prospects were signed in this recruiting class. It just shows you just the ridiculous amount of talent they got. What were the biggest positional needs for Oregon this recruiting cycle, and who are some instant impact freshmen that we could see maybe hit see the field this year? So
1: coming into the 2020 season, Oregon lost its entire offensive line, and so that was a really big key for them. And and you know when Oregon goes out to recruit the offensive line, like they they do it with a purpose. Like that's like like if. It, I think there's probably no position coach on Order's roster that has more pressure on him than Alex Mirabal, just because Mario, like the line is Mario Cristobal's baby. Uh, and they went out and got four just really good guys, in, including uh, um, Kingsley. Oh, I'm going to butcher his last name. Uh, Kingsley, yes. He, he, he's, a, he's a Sewell family protege. He's from Utah. I think he was like the number 36 player in this class. And he's he's a player that like, has been compared a lot to Sewell in just terms of like how physical he can be. They're a little bit different body type. He's Kingsley's like 300. Sewell was like three forty when he came in. Um, but they, they, they just got a really big new like class of linemen that are athletic. They kind of fit o- o- Oregon likes to get its linemen out in space and be able to kind of like, you know, uh, just really kind of take advantage of, of some of the speed that those guys has have. Um, so yeah, that, that was big for them. Uh, oh and they really they they signed a really, really good tight ends class this year, which I which is another big part of Moorhead's offense. Like the, the Ducks had just a weird tight end situation last year. Uh they Cam McCormick who just a really great kid, but he's been injured for basically the last three full seasons and they just haven't had, so they they brought a defensive end over last year, DJ Johnson. And he had like three touchdowns in like the first two weeks. And then they never heard from him again. Um. So they like last year, like they just, they got production out of tight end, but it was never like you're stereotypical. This is what I want out of a tight end. And they signed two guys, uh, Maliki Matabao and Terrence Ferguson, who just look like studs. Like they're both like six six, like two forty, two fifty. They can move well. Uh, they're going to get playing time right away, and so I, I think that's going to be a really big key because the the Ducks just haven't really gotten consistent play out of that position on offense. And probably like two two and two and a half seasons or so ever since Jacob Jacob Reeland got hurt. Um, I think in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen.
0: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I love this class. I mean, there, there's so much talent. I mean, and Oregon's going to be set up for years down the line. Like, I mean, if you feel like that this t- this streak is going to end, Oregon's going to be at the top of the Pac-12 for years to come. But when I look at the schedule, man, looking ahead to 2021. It's not going to be an easy road to repeat as Pac 12 champions. I mean, we, a week two visit to Ohio State is brutal. I, I hate that we miss Ohio State traveling out to Odson, you know, playing the Ducks at home.
1: 2033 or whatever they announced. Yeah. That.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It, uh, that's just so far down the line. I, that yeah. game I was so excited for. But yeah all the way to Columbus Week 2, and then you still have to play tough teams like UCLA, Washington, Utah, all on the road, all difficult environments, difficult teams to play. For you right now, though, looking at the schedule, looking at all the talent, all the freshmen, everything, what is the ceiling and or floor for this 2021 team? Boy, the – It, that's so tough to say because
1: I legitimately have no idea how they're going to do against Ohio State. Like I, I think that the Ducks can and take take advantage of a, a you know a not so great Buckeye secondary and, and maybe score some points and hang and you know if that's the case maybe they're a pick six or a, a turnover score away from from being in that thing. Um, so I think that's going to be the big barometer because they're talented enough to run the table in the pack. Like I I really think they can. Uh, I do think that that's going to be tough with just some of the overall inexperience they have. Like this is an incredibly talented roster, like the good players. But I I do think that proven production is – a very underrated thing these days and, and where, you know, as people think it's just plugging in and play with recruits. Um, so I want to see what they're able to do over a 12 game schedule because it's like like looking over looking on paper, they look great. But then I also very much remember they lost three of the last four games to end, end the year last year. So it's just how much of last year actually counts in the long run or like if it was an aberration or, or whether that's indicative of how they're going to play, because they they definitely have to tackle better. They have to be more advantageous in the secondary. They went from I think 20 interceptions in 2019 that they had five last year. Um, granted it was a shorter season, but it was just that was such a like a big momentum play that they would always use in 2019. Um, so if, if, if it goes well, it means Brown's playing well from the start. It means they get a little bit better play out of their offensive line, which had five completely new starters last year. Um, and it means like players like Noah Sewell and Justin flow. And then some of those guys in the secondary like have really good years if Brown struggles or if somebody gets hurt, like I am a little bit concerned about some of the depth in the secondary. Um, Their, their ones are really good. They could be an injury or two away from just getting picked apart. Uh, I I think the floor is probably like a four loss season. So like probably somewhere in that in between, like I I could see them going, I, I think like 10 and two, 11 and one's a realistic year for them this year with considering their talent. But it's the Pac-12, man. Every time you think you have a front runner, every time you think you have a team that's like ready to like take that step, uh, they lose three of their first four games, and we're <laughs> we're just back in the slop.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to get to next. I mean, but you know, one of my last questions here is just about the perception of the Pac-12 in general. I feel like with four seats at the table, the new Pac-12 commissioner was mentioning it too that the Pac-12's got to focus on football and. As Oregon, when you're at the top of the conference, Oregon, Washington, USC, those are the teams that should be concerned about this the most because with only four seats at the table, it seems like the Pac-12 is always that odd man out. For for you, what does the Pac-12 have to do to fix this perception that they're a step behind the rest of the Power Five conferences in terms of competing for a national championship?
1: It just needs to, you know, like, to be honest. Like, like the it's... Since I've covered the conference, there's always so much peripheral talk of, like, this is how we're going to do it, or, like, this is how we're innovating, or, like, this or that, and it's just – just do it. You know, It's it's been since 2016 since the pack been in, in the playoff, and that's when Washington just got thumped by Alabama in the, in the semis. And, you know, the Ducks put up a pretty – I mean, uh, had an awfully good run in 2014, and they made it to the title game, but um, I, I think there's got to be a, a – more investment in recruiting across the campus. I mean, across the conference, like just the discrepancy and in, in what teams are able to pull in on, you know, the east coast of the country and in the south versus, um, you know, not every team in the Pac-12 is approaching recruiting like the Ducks or USC are right now. And you know, USC and UCLA are the only two teams in the entire conference that have top tier talent in their backyard, and they're not even good at hanging on to it. I mean, like, you know, you have Clemson's, you know, DJU is is from, you know. USC and Oregon were finalists for that, and they lose it to, to Clemson. It's they, they need to keep that talent on the West Coast, and they just need to start winning these games. I, and I do think, I do think getting a strong USC back is a pretty important thing for this conference. Like, you know, as I, I think Oregon's a national enough brand, and Washington's got money, and Washington's from Seattle, but like it's USC's like the the most known commodity in this conference outside of Oregon, and I think to, you need to have. I think the best thing that could happen would be if Oregon and USC start going back and forth with each other the next couple of years to so just kind of generate that, and
0: occasionally have one of them reach playoff contention. Right. And I mean, yeah, because I mean, you saw like Utah was getting no respect when they were a they were a potential top five team, and then Oregon knocks them off well, in the yeah, and then
1: Oregon beats them by like thirty five or whatever it was yeah. that game. like it, and and like I was. Like, this is how confusing the Pac-12, though, is, too, because it wasn't just, like, the national the media national was going on. Oh, Utah's getting no respect. Like, I think I predict Utah to beat Oregon with, like, three scores in that game, and then, like, I look like an idiot. <laughs> like, it's, it's just tough, and it's inconsistent. And I, I think the overall level of football, or, like, the overall level of football, I think, is better than people give it credit for. Like, I think the mid-range is pretty good, but that mid-range is still pretty, like, Is good enough that it occasionally knocks off the top guys, and there's just never been that like elite team for the last four or five seasons that can get through that.
0: Right. I mean, I think Oregon, if they don't lose to Arizona State that you know two years ago, I think they could have. They probably would have had a really good shot to make. Were they number? Were they like number seven ish when that happened? I I, I think they were six or seven, if I'm not mistaken. That, that was, that was
1: the most unexpected game I've ever been to. Like Oregon was like (laughs) on a roll and then they just lay a complete, and like that Arizona state team's good. Like JT, uh, uh, or sorry. Is it JT Danton? It's
0: Jaden, Jaden. yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry. Jaden Daniels. Like that kid's a good quarterback. And I think he's, he's him and Arizona state could be a dark horse to upset some teams this year, but, uh, yeah, that was, everyone was finally starting to talk about the playoff. The Ducks had just beat USC pretty handily in the Coliseum. And I think Crystal ball finally had a quote of, like, oh, we deserve to be in the conversation. And then it's just a dud.
0: <laughs> hey, it, it happens. I just think the parody of the Pac 12 gets overlooked. I think Utah doesn't get enough credit. I don't think you've mentioned Arizona's. State doesn't get it. UCLA towards the end of last year was I mean was one one or two plays away from beating USC so I just feel like those those middle tier teams don't get enough credit Colorado was a pretty good team last year as well so yeah. it's uh and it's it's frustrating at times too
1: because like. If, if you weren't necessarily putting it on like the national pedestal of, of grading all success by like, whether or not you made the championship or not, like covering the PAC 12 is a gas man. Like, like these games are fun. Like it's again, like you don't know what's expected. And like, there's good football games that are being played. So like, I'm not like, I've never been down on like the product of PAC 12 football, but I mean, ultimately like, if you're not winning, you're not making money. You're falling behind, and and I mean that's kind of where we're at. It's like I think there's a lot of people that care about what's going on out here. It's just, you know, you got to start producing.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely, man. But you know, last question here. So I, I, we were talking before the show about how I was I always considered myself an honorary or- Oregon fan outside of one night in January and one one night in August two years ago, but. Eugene Ottson Stadium. I mean, let's just be honest, probably one of the most famous stadiums in the country, just in terms of crowd support, crowd noise. What makes this city and Eugene and Ottson Stadium so unique on game days?
1: Man, that's a good question. I mean, it's for one, it's such a unique stadium, too. It's just kind of like. Like Eugene's like such a it's just surrounded by trees like it's a relatively quiet city like during like the week and everything and then there's there's, it's just kind of like and this is a little bit cliche but this was just like a pilgrimage to the stadium and there's so much like his, like there's this river that you cross over the bridge and everyone's like walking up and you know we have such bad weather here for so much of the year that like those fall saturday mornings are just like so not like it's a nice. It's a great tailgate scene. It's a good stadium. It's a smart crowd. It's, it's a crowd that cares about its players. It's a crowd that like appreciates good football too. So it's like, they don't get overtly nasty towards like the opposing fan base. Um, There's a lot of like, you know, give and take and that sort of thing, but it's just uh, you know, this is a school that supported its team uh, for decades when they were bad and they were, they were bad up until about 1994 or so. And, and since then they've been one of the more successful programs on the West coast, if, if not, you know, necessarily that top tier in the country, but close to it. And so like you had that, like that built in, like we love our program and then now you've had their success on top of that. And that's just kind of, you know, throw in Nike and, and all that kind of sort of, and just, you know, the most ridiculous facilities that they've built over the last decade. Uh, it, it really kind of, Creates a melting pot of uh, fandom here.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, I, I'm so excited to go. I'm from Southern Alabama, so I haven't had a chance to go, but it is on my. It's probably like my top two or three stadium on my bucket list to go and see. And so, you know, the, the, I gotta just like a, I, I have to ask you this right before I let you go because I didn't know this was still a debate until Auburn and Oregon played in 2019. Dyer was down. Yeah, Dyer was yeah, down. Yeah, I had Dyer to ask down. you, was well, Dyer-, Dyer down? <laughs>
1: Man, I uh, uh, before they played that game two years ago, I did uh, I did like a full like retrospect. I went and asked like a whole bunch of old like organ players, like if, you know, basically I like, put them through PTSD of of their react. Like I got the like the camera operator who was like, he's like, I swear I sort saw, saw through my lens like Dyer was down, and so I, I had to be careful writing that one around like with my tone with the organ fans because uh, that's that's the one one of the things that they're incredibly passionate about is uh, the fact that Michael Dyer was down.
0: Hey, I I love it. I, I love the debate. I didn't know it was even a thing anymore, and then right before we played, like I saw like this big Twitter thing started by a bunch of the Auburn and Oregon accounts, and they were like, Die Hard was down there posting pictures and videos, and I was like, Man, I didn't even know this was a debate. So right. it's a. It will, I think it, until the end of time, it will be a passionate debate between Auburn and Oregon fans, whether Dyer was down. But it was a great game. Regardless, both or, – Oregon-Auburn, I mentioned need to just do a home-and-home home series because oh, yeah. every time they get together, it is a historically great game. Well, shoot, if uh... – <laughs>
1: If Justin Herbert's Hail Mary at the end of that game would have landed in the same area code, maybe that Arizona State game would have mattered tell you like months down the-
0: <laughs> Oh, man. but he threw that ball and like on that kickoff return, the, the kid hit like the 50 and I was sitting there, I was like, how did we just not cover the kick? Like it, we just did this amazing drive and then you just don't cover the kick and you give arguably the best quarterback in the country a perfect shot at a Hail Mary. I was upset in the crowd for yeah. that one, but –
1: yeah, I was I was just I was on the sideline for that, and now just talking about it, I I'm so excited to be back to like normal football, man. Like just like no no fans in the stands last year at Pac-12 games, and just it it I love that we had football, but it was it was a bit of a drag, and I'm just I'm, I'm stoked.
0: <laughs> yeah, you could tell it wasn't the same, and then like I think it was like Cal and Washington had to play at like eight o'clock in the morning on the East Coast on a Sunday. Because of COVID, and then there was no fans in the stands. It was like, man, that game had to be the worst game of all time to play. But, uh, man, I appreciate you coming on. I had an absolute blast talking Oregon football with you. But you know, I I think you're our. third or fourth straight um, person from the athletic that we've had on here just by chance. But I keep telling all our listeners, the athletic is one of the best websites out there with the best college football coverage. Where can they find you on there and what, where else could they find you out there in the social media world? Yeah, I'm on Twitter.
1: It's just at Tyson Alger, one word. Um, and then on the athletic, if, uh, if you just go to the athletic and click on the Oregon tab, that's, that's where I live most, most of the year. And, uh, um, I, I recently, I think last week, I had a a, a longer piece uh, making the case for a Kevon Thibodeau's Heisman uh, campaign. If if people want to check, it, just kind of a little tongue in cheek looking at what are the chances of a defensive end actually contending for that thing. So, um, yeah, if, if people want to check it out, I, I, great. <laughs> hey
0: guys, I beg y'all to go check it out. I promise you, y'all won't be disappointed. I subscribe to the Athletic. Bet some, I think the best online content in the country going on right now for college football. But, guys, for for you, you know where you can find us. We kick this back off later this week with Stanford with our Pac-12 and 31 days. But this will be up, the two-minute drill, Monday through Friday, up on our YouTube channel. Make sure to subscribe now to enter yourself in the merch giveaway. But for Tyson, for myself, and for the Blue Bloods, we are out.